Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. the Mad Max Minute, where shouting across the compound is now the norm in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 55, which begins with the gyro captain making eyes at Arky, and it ends with everyone wondering what all the technical jargon adds up to. Today is our Friday episode. It is the special day of the week where we invite a third chair onto the podcast, and this week our third chair is none other than Brad Mendenhall of the Cosmic Geppetto Broadcast. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey! I should note that it's the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, not broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Pointing that out does mean that I'll have to keep that flub in there, but you know what? We're loosey-goosey. It's Friday. You you, you get to see all the seams uh, with with Mad Max Minute, you know? Exactly. uh, You know, these are movies that show the seams a lot of times, and that's part of their charm, so uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. It all ties together. Now, Brad... We've never had you on our podcast before, but we've been on your podcast projects in the past. Not Cosmic Geppetto, but we were on a couple episodes of the Minute of Darkness podcast. Rick, you hold the distinction of being one of very few guests that actually returned. Because when we were doing the Minute of Darkness, which was a minute-by-minute daily breakdown of the brilliant Sam Raimi film, Army of Darkness... You were one of the first people to volunteer, and you had very specific minutes that you wanted to record. And uh, you were on by yourself, and you were fantastic. And we had such a great time with you, me and my partner, Ryan, who very much wanted to be joining me today, but it just didn't work out because he's a grown-up, and you know, grown-ups have things that they must do. Mm-hmm. But uh, you were great. We had such much fun. And then later, there was another uh, group of minutes, which was a very Mad Max-influenced the scene of Army of Darkness, where you see the tricked-out Oldsmobile tearing through the Deadites, and it's like, wow. And you and Julia uh, came on, and it was, again, it was fantastic. You guys are so good at this. And we were very lucky to have you on that show for both those sets of minutes. And, uh, you know, we, we... And I'm so glad to be... Uh, have a chance to sort of play in your yard because uh, I love talking with you guys and uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, this was an interesting minute, minute 55, sort of the denouement of the uh, most recent battle where they're uh, getting ready for the next scene. It's fun because it gives you a lot of stuff to talk about because uh, Mad Max and this franchise does very well dealing with the scenes in between the battles and a lot of cool stuff. the, The battles are great and really amazing stuff but then the character moments in between are really fantastic as well so i'm I'm, uh, very excited about this i'm glad you're feeling so up to this i mean we have played over in your spaces so many times it almost seemed foolish not to get you over here to play with some of our toys now one project that we haven't been on yet that i'd like you to tell us a little bit more about is your mothership podcast the cosmic geppetto podcast what is that all about well basically what happened is two years ago just a little bit over 100 episodes. We we recently had our 100th episode celebration. Me and a couple of friends uh, from college, uh, one of whom I did a radio show in college, uh, Jarf, who was a frequent contributor to the Minute of Darkness as well, were big fans of the, the the films of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. And it started off, we actually even had a different title. Originally, it was called Movies at Marvel. I was like, okay, we're going to talk about Marvel movies. This is going to be me and my friends from college. And we're going to talk about it once a week. And it got away from us frighteningly scared. 
It got, it got away from us real quick. <laughs> in terms of, I can't say, frighteningly. And it quickly mutated to talking about Marvel movies to talking about Marvel movies, DC movies, anything pop culture, TV shows, music. We've had amazing uh, musical um, people from the music industry on uh, the great New York a band called Babetown who were on, who were amazing. Uh, we had uh, Richard Lloyd, who is an iconic uh, guitarist from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, was on. Um, and we've had authors and uh, comic book artists. We just had um, an episode that will be coming up in the next few weeks. We just talked with Walt Simonson. And to anybody who read comics in the 80s, especially, he was one of the, the most important artists to ever work on uh, Thor, the comic book Thor. And it's very cool because a lot of the imagery that you see for the Thor Ragnarok movie really stems from his work on the comics. And uh, it was great talking to a guy who was on the set of the first Thor movie. And he talked about, oh, yeah, I was talking with Tom and Chris. He's like, you mean Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth? He's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, very cool. <laughs> and we just had, um, just interviewed Robin Paris, who was uh, one of the supporting players in the Tommy Wiseau classically bad movie, The Room. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, she was wonderful. She was wonderful. Such a great... Um, it's funny, the people who've watched The Room, it's a terrible movie, but it's funny because it's a terrible movie with a lot of talented supporting players. And you could just see, when you watch that movie, it's like, oh, all these poor people, you can tell they can do so much more than just be in this nonsensical movie. And she's um, like a well-trained um, comedic actress and improvist. Uh, she was, uh, I believe it was second, she, she even did some work with Second City where Tina Fey and uh, Steve Carell came from. And a uh, great mind for the business. And she's, um, it was a fascinating interview. And she sort of took this little bit of infamy from being part of this movie. And she is now um, created, directed, and ri written her own uh, web series called uh, The Room Actors, Where Are They Now? Which is a very, very funny, like, four-episode, five-episode series where it's a very comedic take on the Where Are They Now thing that uh, was very popular for a while. And uh, it, it's very cool. And uh, we've been lucky. We've had fantastic guests like that. And uh, we're, we're continuing to do a lot of stuff like that and having great guests. And we're going to have you guys on uh, some point soon. Uh, we, uh, and because when we find good people, we, we just hold on to them. We, we don't let them go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you've cast a really wide net in the Cosmic Geppetto, I guess, not so much cinematic universe, but just collective, so to speak. And it's amazing the different people that you're able to get on the show and subjects that you're able to cover. And one of these days... We'll get on there. Well, I think especially <laughs> we want to have you guys on um, something that we we've been doing on and off for a year that we got to really rededicate ourselves to is we've been doing a best of the '90s contest where we just pick our favorite movies, cartoons, TV shows from the '90s and we sort of make them battle each other. And uh, we need to have you guys on uh, to to represent uh, you know some some of those great um, you know pop culture uh, pieces from that decade because uh, I, I would like to see you two fight honestly. <laughs> if there's one thing we know and one thing that we're going to be very intimately accustomed to, it's the idea of two things entering somewhere and then only one thing coming out again. <laughs> yeah, 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 it all works. It is, it's, it's a good uh, corporate time, good corporate synergy. Yeah, exactly. Why don't we transition from talking about your projects and then we'll circle back around and get into the meat and potatoes of this minute. I think I've 
used that phrase before. But we start off minute 55. The curmudgeon and the gyro captain and Archie Whitley's character, they're all gathered around the gyrocopter. And the curmudgeon looks over at the gyro captain and he asks, this machine of yours, it can take two, can it? And the gyro captain looks over at the curmudgeon, notices Archie standing there and leans in, smiles, says, possibly. And I just want to get this right out front. I don't want to necessarily beat a dead horse, but there's no possibly. No, that gyrocopter <laughs> only sits one. It's only got one seat. It's not strong enough to carry two people. So in the real world, taking movie magic completely out of it, no. It's too late for that, though. <laughs> We've already in-universe established it can take two? Yes, exactly. We have witnessed it ourselves taking two plus other things, plus a dog, and plus cans of fuel. We can't go back from that now. <laughs> this movie magic is now canon. I would I would love it, though, if uh, it turns out you couldn't, and it was just a way to get Arky to sit on his lap while he tried to take off. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know where else she could sit. Well, listen, you're going to feel some vibration. No, just, no, that's us trying to take off. Yeah, that vibration, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, the, that's the handle that you feel. Sorry. Um, that's, yeah. that's an auxiliary control stick. Don't worry about it. Actually, could you grab that and help me steer? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Would not put it past him. So the curmudgeon. Yeah. I always assumed that he asked about how many people can fly in the gyrocopter with Arky in mind, that he was trying to set them up, that he was trying to get his daughter. We're not really sure if it is his daughter, but daughter, niece, person, relation, like essentially married off so that somebody else can take care of her. And that's just always been an assumption of mine. Do you think he was asking for Arky or do you think he was asking for himself? Well, the way I see it, the curmudgeon is getting on in years. He's not a young man anymore. And if he feels personally responsible for Arky's well-being, he probably comes from that generation where he doesn't necessarily believe in the idea of a strong, independent woman who don't need no man to pay her bills. And so his mindset is that he needs to pass off Arky's well-being and what's the word I'm looking for? He needs to, I guess, for lack of better phrasing at the time, make her someone else's problem, which is a terrible way to put it. I'm pretty sure those were the exact words uh, I used when I uh, asked my uh, fa future father-in-law for uh, his daughter's handed marriage. Can she be my problem now? <laughs> Let me be her problem, sir. Let me take her off your hands. He's like, oh, okay, sounds good. Here are the keys. He's like, your daughter doesn't need keys. Sorry, that's for my house. <laughs> In that situation, you take the house keys, because if he's giving you his permission and a house, you take the house. <laughs> that's long gone now. But... Yeah, I look at this situation more as the curmudgeon seeing an opportunity to get Arky further away from the violence that's about to happen. That's true. It has been pointed out to us during the last battle that she is a non-combatant. Mm -hmm. We saw her in a tent keeping away from the violence, not participating in any way. So it does make sense that he would see an opportunity for her to get out and set it up. Yeah. Although I will say it is a little weird that he's like trying to pass her to another person without her really having any say in it. I mean, she does seem completely oblivious. Even after the gyro captain's like seriously making eyes at her, she just seems a little like she doesn't know what's going on. I don't know if I want to say oblivious. I want to say like ambivalent. Like she's just not feeling it, but she's like, I guess. I mean, he's tall. 
Do you also think there's a thing where she knows she can handle him? I mean, he, he the pilot, uh, the gyro captain is certainly like creeping and has a little bit of leer, but he still is somehow weirdly endearing and also comes across as harmless. It's like, oh, he's going to make a move. He wouldn't even know what to do. And I'll just elbow <laughs> him in the face and it'll be done. This guy's harmless. I'll, you know, it, and she's, Arky is so beautiful in this scene. Her eyes are amazing. And oh, she's adorable. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they do a great job of, she's all in white. She has such a fair complexion. Her hair so light. It's a great virginal angel look that she portrays. And uh, you, you just know, the giant captain would have no idea what to do with this girl. He would just, he would just turn into shell from a Big Bang Theory real quick. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the gyro captain would probably be gentlemanly to her, probably be the kind of guy who would be courteous. And he strikes me as a thoughtful individual that is not going to try to force her to do anything he does have a sense of formality about his person yeah yes he's a goof and he's wearing pink shoes and a yellow onesie but he's also like wearing a flower on his jacket and i don't think we've ever seen him without his jacket on Mm -mm. so those things do kind of give us a sense of gentlemanliness he's got that old world primness yeah i think so if that's a phrase (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is now. We've also never seen him without a hat. That's very true. We don't know what his hair situation is going on. Yes. He could take that hat off and be like completely bald. And then Arky's like, whoa, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> oh. I would be personally hoping for a sideshow Bob situation where he <laughs> takes the hat off and just this gigantic <laughs> plume of, uh, you know, just hair going everywhere. Like, a you know, mix of sideshow Bob and perhaps Doc from Back to the Future. It's like, okay, that'd be perfect. <laughs> Way more hair than would reasonably fit underneath that cap. Remember, that used to be a thing in cartoons all the time where you would have the character in a, a movie theater behind a guy with a hat that's partially blocked of views like pardon me sir can you take off your hat he takes it off and just the hair it's this gigantic mound of hair that goes uh, almost to the ceiling and of course the character would like pull out a like a lawnmower and just mow a big swatch of hair <laughs> up so he can see the screen that's what i want that's what i want the gyro captain to have under that hat that would be excellent absolutely i did also notice that she's exactly the sort of clean woman that he was talking about to max a few minutes ago that he misses about the pre-apocalyptic world right arky is not the typical wasteland woman running around with a biker gang and whatnot you know murdering and killing and doing all of those unsavory wastelandy things you know she right. is instead you know a very like you said, clean person who is helpful and caring. You know, when Nathan was brought in on his stretcher, she was there with the that thing that blows air into people's mouths when they're unconscious. I don't know what that's called, uh, but it's a tool of some kind. <laughs> and she's got this little dog that she cares for. Like, she's exactly, like you said, a clean woman from before the collapse. So I I can definitely see the two of them hitting it off. I mean, the end credits definitely think so, because she's not actually named Arky. She's just referred to as the captain's girl. Right. So at least we know that relationship survives intact. Well, now the same actor portrays, um, was in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And is he, he's a pilot in that as well, but he has a different name in that. 
Mm-hmm. He's uh, Jedediah the pilot, but mm-hmm. but is it supposed to be the? Is it the same character? Is this the same person? So canonically speaking, it's not the same character. However, it is still played by Bruce Spence in Beyond Thunderdome. He has a child. They have an airplane. It's one of those things where if they wanted Jedediah the pilot and the gyro captain to be the same character, they very well could be, especially considering that the kid is a little blonde kid and Archie Whitley is a blonde actress. So they're kind of setting it up for the possibility, but everything I've read leans to the contrary. Mm -hmm. Sounds like one of those things where... At some point, uh, George Miller would say in interviews, like, oh, yeah, this is the same guy. And it, it would be 20 years later or 10 years later or th- that is like confirms it, although it's never specifically said in anything that you actually see on film. Sort of like the um, going back to Marvel movies, which is a specialty mine, where <laughs> everyone's confirming now that the little boy in S- – Iron Man 2 that uh, mm-hmm. had a, like a toy Iron Man mask. Everyone's now saying, he's like, oh yeah, that was Peter Parker. And the directors and actors and producers of the films are now all saying, yeah, that was Peter Parker the whole time. It's like, was it? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about this in a long time, but we really like the idea of Campfire Theory, which basically states that none of these stories are 100% happening as they're presented because they're all technically stories told by other people after the fact. In Road Warrior, we have the feral child who grows up to be the leader of the Great Northern Tribe who tells the story to us through the old man's voiceover. In Beyond Thunderdome, we've got the voice of one of the kids from the plane crash. They end up telling the story through voiceover. So all of these instances, the tiny details of Bruce Spence playing multiple characters are just you know, tiny details that would be thrown in there during storytelling to physically describe person. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're the same person. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, um, this is not the first time I've heard theories like that, um, and it was often used to explain how. But by the time you get to Fury Road, it explains why you know Max is. You know, it's obviously some time has passed since the first uh, Road Warrior film and, or Mad Max film, and you know now Mad Max is much younger. It's like it's because it's just another legend being told, and as is the case of those sort of fireside stories, you, you can sort of change the details about the main character, and it still works. Exactly. So one thing that really stands out to me about Archie Whitley's character is her hairstyle. And we get to see a little bit of it. I think they cut it off in the frame, but it's a sort of a vertical ponytail or or, or some sort of vertical braid. It reminds me of the Who's from How the Grinch yes! Stole Christmas. I've been thinking that for weeks and keep forgetting to bring it up when she's actually on screen. But yes, that's exactly what it looks like. Which begs the question, the Who's in Whoville, their entire world exists on a snowflake. Now, considering that the Captain's Girl has the same hairstyle as the Who's in Whoville, is the entire Mad Max universe taking place on a single grain of sand blowing around in a sandstorm? So, was I supposed to get stoned before I joined the show? (laughs) (laughs) No, this is just my harebrained theory based solely on the hairstyle of one character. (laughs) Okay, because... Because I, uh, I let my uh, glaucoma prescription lapse, uh, so I feel, uh, it, you know, what makes all the George Miller work uh, so interesting is you can you, these theories uh, hold water 
uh, for all of the films where just the, the whole idea of the campfire story and how the world's changed so drastically from film to film to film. And Miller's a director who definitely plays by his own rules and um, uses his own narrative. And it all makes sense, even when it doesn't make sense. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that could work. I wonder how much of a fan of Grinch Stole Christmas George Miller is. But you know what? Miller <laughs> has, was able to direct some really, really darn good uh, animated features himself. So maybe. Maybe. We cut from the scene between the gyro captain and Arky, which was really only the first 10, 11 seconds of this minute, up to Papagallo, who has been shot in the leg, and he's lying on this platform, and Zeta runs up to check on him. So Zeta asks if he's all right, and Papagallo, yeah, he's hurt, but he's not super concerned with the fact that he's hurt. He's more concerned with everybody getting organized and ready because he wants them to leave that night. So... Zeta hops up on this other platform and he's shouting to the compound, okay, listen, everyone, we're going out tonight. You all know what to do. Just get on with it. And I kind of like that shorthand because it saves us from Zeta going into, okay, you and you do this, you and you do this. Just have him pop up there and say, you all know what to do. Get on with it because it lets us get on with it. <laughs> yeah, it, this is, and I love that from Papagallos. Is, but he, he's obviously hurt very bad, but it's it helps um, give us an urgency. It's like, no, no we, we can't really worry about me. I'm fine. Obviously, he's not fine. No. And just get to work and everyone jumps into it. One thing that was so interesting about uh, the way Papagallos was wounded where it's basically shot in pretty much the hip Mm -hmm. and that was such an interesting choice i thought by miller where normally when you have something where somebody gets shot bullet arrow whatever usually if if you're going to kill him it's going to be the head throat or heart and if you're going to wound him it's going to be the shoulder and there's just something that was so um uncomfortable about watching him getting shot in the hip because that's something where first off you don't you don't see that in movies very often when someone gets shot with an arrow and then uh also the idea that that's really going to just damages mobility and really um hamper what the character can do so it's sort of a little thing but but a good choice i thought where Mm -hmm. it it, you're taking away the character's mobility and what he can do and now everything about papagallos is his his ability to lead and um sort of you have an action movie where one of the characters his action now is just going to be his ability to sort of think things think things through and inspire the people following him. Yeah, Papagallo is a thinker and a speaker, not a warrior. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Papagallo. I he he hasn't won me over yet, but this minute kind of went a long way to winning me over. Yeah, because he kind of sloughed off his injury, making it seem like it was less bad than it is. It is a bad injury. He needs to get it taken care of. But his focus is still on the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, we made progress in getting out of here. Let's not stop now. Keep making progress. We're leaving tonight. And I think it really speaks to his leadership that he does that. There is a background detail that I want to point out before we move on to the rest of the minute. As Zeta is standing up on that platform shouting to everybody. Oh, I love this shot. You get to see so much going on. Yeah. You can see Big Rebecca and another compound dweller, and they are carrying David through the center of the compound because, you know, the last time we saw him, he got headbutted by Wes and then thrown off that platform. And we don't really see him after that. Well, in this instance, you can see that they're at least moving his body around. And 
I don't remember off the top of my head, even though it was a few days ago that we were talking about it um, in real world time. We were wondering if he survived that. Does that sound right, Julia? Yeah, we were. And actually, also in that scene, you can see another pair of compound dwellers dragging a marauder's body away. Mm -hmm. They didn't pick it up. They just dragged it through the dirt. So I think we might be able to assume that because Rebecca and mystery person didn't drag David, that they actually picked him up off the ground. We might be able to count that as a sign that he's not dead, that he's just unconscious. Yeah, we are going to see David next time in minute 71, and I'm pretty sure he's dead, but we need to look very closely. He might still be breathing. The next time we see him, it's going to kind of look like he's got a dent in his cranium there. Uh Oh, Is that what the uh, front portion of your skull is called the cranium uh. i think that part is definitely part of the yeah i think this part part is definitely the cranium there that might be more of just your head in general's your cranium yeah I think yeah so. yeah the Me- frontal lobe yeah. is the brain part yeah it gives the appearance that so... the front of his skull was cracked enough to concave a little bit okay all right, I'm gonna. I have questions about that, but I'm gonna save it for when that's actually on screen. Right. Because I definitely have questions. We are gonna have a nice shot of David's face with the wound, and we'll be able to see then if he's breathing or not. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll analyze that. We'll, but this is where we see his body being, being moved. moved. I just wanted to bring that up real okay. quick. Okay. Also, in this moment, you can also see the gyrocopter and the captain. The curmudgeon and Arky still standing around, and the gyro captain is totally leaning. <laughs> yeah, he's totally leaning in on Arky, like flirting with her hard. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and the feral child is still hanging around. Of course. A little further back than he was. He's no longer, like, touching the machine, but he's still around. Moving back to Zeta, after he tells everyone to get on with it, he shouts down for Timbo and Derek to come over because Papagallo's been hurt. And as Papagallo drags himself into a sitting position, Timbo and Derek show up. Now, I'm not entirely sure which one is Timbo and which one is Derek. They, you've got one guy who's got a nose bandage and kind of a brown apron. And then the other guy is older, a bit more round with white hair. Now, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about which one is which. I feel like the old dude is Derek and the guy with the nose badge is Timbo. I just feel like a younger guy would have Timbo as a nickname and the old guy would be Derek. I could not possibly care any less which one is which. I am quite peeved that they have names. And warrior woman and victim and the the captain's girl. Gyro captain doesn't have a real don't name. Don't get names, but Timbo and Derek get names. Okay, here's the thing. That is Timbo I, and Derek are called by name in this movie, and then they show up on screen immediately afterwards. Timbo and Derek don't show up in the credits. Like when they're listing the characters in the movie, yeah. there's nothing that says Timbo and then here's an actor's name. Derek, here's an actor's name. They're completely gone. So George Miller wrote names for characters that don't get credited as those characters. Yeah. This movie is off the wall when it comes to attributing characters to these actors. It really is. Somebody just forgot to take notes or somebody lost their yeah. notes. 
There are more names in the screenplay that we have that did not make it to screen or to the credits. Yeah. You know, I was ready to drop the whole names thing. We hadn't talked about it in a while. And then Timbo and Derek come up. You know what we need? We need a Mad Max special edition box set where George Miller goes back and dubs in and names fixes things. <laughs> Because that has never gone wrong in the past. <laughs> right, right. I want a Mad Max with random dewbacks appearing on the sand dunes and droids and extra spaceships everywhere. I want Wes to shoot first. <laughs> uh, honestly, I would be happy if he just redid the credits. Right, exactly. That's so funny. That is really funny. Anyway. Timbo and Derek show up. They're attending to Papagallo, but Papagallo is more focused on the rig. So he shouts up to Zeta, how's the rig? Zeta, standing on the platform, shouts across the compound, the rig, how is she? Now, I should say, seeing Zeta up on the platform, there's a continuity error. We just saw Timbo or Derek, doesn't matter who, the guy with the nose bandage and the apron. We saw him on the platform next to Papagallo. When we see Zeta shouting across the rig, how is he? We can see nose bandage apron guy running across the center of the compound. Ah. Minor detail, continuity error thought i'd point it out anyway this starts the game of phone tag or whatever you want to call it because everything the mechanic says the mechanics assistant shouts and it's pretty extensive the damage that they've sustained in getting the rig to the compound it's got a cracked timing case cover a the radiator's damaged at the core it's got a cracked water pump and a fractured ejector line got broken teeth on the timing gear yeah and the whole time this list is happening you've got this shouting Back and forth, and it's great. It's the best thing about this minute. This shouting was so awesome. And the f- I, I had to watch it a couple times, because the first time I'm like, oh, he's mumbling or even speaking a different language, and that he's translating. He's like, no, he's just saying the same thing louder. He's doing an English-to-English translation. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I was hoping that he was translating from something unintelligible to English, shouting it across the compound. I was really hoping. I thought that would be really fantastic comedically like the mechanics using some sort of inside baseball shorthand like oh the 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 whoosie what's it's gone all bibbly bobby in the tanglewood or something like that (laughs) 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 i'm I'm not good at making up nonsense words on the spot Uh, uh, honestly that sounds (laughs) like most of the conversations me and my wife have she's like yeah "Uh, listen can you pick up the who's it from the uh the, the thing i was like i know exactly what you mean we've been doing this too long And that would be a really cute callback to the original Mad Max, where Max was fixing their station wagon. Yeah. And Jesse comes up next to him and starts doing exactly that. Like, yeah. you gotta com- com- you gotta connect the thing of the bob to the who's what's it before you can con- connect the thingamajigger back in. <laughs> like, and she starts doing that, and it's really adorable. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think is absolutely hilarious about this shot between the mechanic and the mechanics assistant there is a dude standing behind them he's got like a head wrap and a red beard and if you watch him he starts off looking at the mechanic mechanic says his thing mechanics assistant starts shouting and his eyes bounce back and forth and he actually turns his head a little bit and so it's like he's watching a game of tennis or something like that and it's funny because all I could do once I noticed him was watch 
him bounce back and forth between these two characters. Oh, I want to go back and see that. That sounds very entertaining. Yeah. The shot starts at 37 seconds and goes all the way through to 53 seconds. So it's a huge chunk of this minute. But yeah, when you go back, watch for the redheaded guy. All right. This is a great game of like mixed doubles tennis Mm -hmm. going on across the compound. We are at the point where we have talked about nearly every single character who gets an acting credit in the credits with the exception of the mechanics assistant. And I saved him for this minute because he actually has spoken dialogue. The mechanics assistant is played by Christopher Greaves. So his top four on IMDb start with the road warrior where he plays the mechanics assistant. It continues with Babe Pig in the City from 1998 where he played a chef. Next up is Breathing Underwater from 1992, where he plays a character named Herman. And finally, we have Greenkeeping from 1992, where he plays Robbie. So, Dr. Christopher Greaves began his acting career in 1977 with the One Extra Dance Company in Darlinghurst, New South Wales. He started a career in theater there which eventually led to his first motion picture role in Mad Max to The Road Warrior. He continued acting on stage and screen until 1998 with his appearance in Babe Pig in the City. While performing, Greaves attended the University of New England in Armadale, New South Wales, and achieved his BA, LLB, Honorary, Law and Arts, English Literature, Linguist Theater degree. What? Yeah. Before going to get his Master of Professional Education and Training, Flexible Online and Distance Education for Professionals degree from Deakin University, followed by his Doctor of Philosophy, PhD in Legal Education. Shut up. This guy's a doctor. Wow. I I don't do enough. (laughs) (laughs) He is currently the Assistant Director in Learning Design in the College of Law, Australia's Content Design and Development Directorate. He leads and manages the creation of high-quality, scalable learning design and conceptualize, develop, and review program strategies in response to research and analytics in new and emerging markets. He is also a consultant for research and publication projects. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I haven't done enough with my life. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it's always amazing (laughs) when you you, you find out the people who have iconic roles who then have done other things and uh, the, the example I, I always think of when stuff like that is Peter Weller who played uh, Robocop in the first two Robocop mm-hmm. films and also um, played Buckaroo Banzai so he's had some pretty great pop culture roles and I was watching a documentary on I forget what it was but it had to do with like the true ruins and discovering like artifacts and then all of a sudden it showed Peter Weller and it said Peter Weller professor at Syracuse University or somewhere like that. It's like, what? what? Wait, what? (laughs) Same guy? (laughs) And, you know, not only does it say Peter Weller, but nobody looks like Peter Weller. It's like, could it be be another, like, googly-eyed, really skinny, but still somehow malevolent guy? No, no, that that is a one. Uh, Unless it's Steve Buscemi's modestly, moderately better-looking brother, who happens to be named Peter Weller as well, that's the same guy. Yeah. (laughs) When I search for Christopher Greaves in Google because it didn't really say that much about him on IMDb. I kept getting all of these hits for, you know, Dr. Christopher Greaves. He has his own website. And I ended up looking him up on LinkedIn because you go from his website, he has a link 
to his LinkedIn profile and I scrolled down on his work history and sure enough, right in that opening spot, it said actor from 1977 to 1998. And I'm like, there's no way. And yeah, that's exactly the doofy mechanics assistant. He went on to be incredibly well-educated and very professionally well-respected. And that blows my mind. And do you think it's the, the guys he works with, they all want to ask him about it, but it's like, oh, I can't ask him. That's going to be weird. Uh, or, or if they just finally have a happy hour where everybody has one too many. Well, it's Australia, so you know they always have one too many drinks from what I understand. <laughs> They're all kicking back their fosters and uh, and finally all ask at the same time. Because um, I actually have experience with this. I work with someone in my day job who was the contestant on a season of The Voice. Everyone knows he was on The Voice. Nobody asks him about being on The Voice because nobody knows how to broach the subject. It's like, (laughs) what's... What do I do? Just ask him what CEO's like? I don't know how to do this. So I I wonder what everyone's interaction is with him on that particular score. That reminds me of when we were talking to... Yuri and Travis. Yuri Lowenthal is a voice actor, and he has run into Vernon Wells on multiple occasions. And he was telling us about one time where I think he resisted the urge to ask about Mad Max for a total of five minutes <laughs> before he broke down. It's tough when you know you know someone like that, and you want to ask the questions, and you know it's not cool. You know they're probably sick of it, or for you, it's the biggest thing about them. It's like Mad Max or something like that. And from I imagine from his perspective, it's like it was nice. It was just it was probably a small role. You you don't want to talk about all the other incredible things I've done in my life. It's like oh, I want to hear about <laughs> Mad Max. We repeated what the other guy said. Yeah. So as for the other movies that Greaves was in, Babe, Pig in the City is the 1998 sequel to 1995's Babe. It was directed by George Miller and written by a team comprised of George Miller, Judy Morris, Mark Lamprell, and Dick Kingsmith. The movie starred Elizabeth Daly as the voice of Babe alongside James Cromwell and and Magna Zubansky as the farmer and his wife. The movie revolves around Babe's quest to save the farm after Farmer Hoggett, played by Cromwell, suffers an injury. We have not seen the Babe movies yet. I feel like it's going to be another one of our hiatus materials, though. If we watched Happy Feet during our first hiatus, we might have to watch Babe for our second or third hiatuses. I think that's a good idea. I've seen the first one, but if I remember correctly, Miller didn't really have anything to do with the first one, right? Did no, he, he directed it. He directed, he directed it. the first one too? Yeah. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I don't remember like how much I enjoyed it or what I enjoyed about it. I just remember that I liked it. I think I'd be more open to watching the original because I feel like coming in right in the middle of the story with Babe 2, Pig in the City, I feel like there'd be some sort of detail or note about the character that I would miss. The first Babe was excellent. That was a... Um an Oscar-nominated film for Best Picture, um, it, which was just astounding because it seemed to have such a slight concept behind it. But a uh, really, really good movie. Uh, James Cromwell was excellent. It was sort of a revelation because this is an actor who'd been around forever, uh, but this was uh, a, such a great role for him. And I, 
the last five minutes of that movie is one of my favorite sections of movie. It's just a great ending. And uh, once you watch the movie, you don't even need to see when you on subsequent viewings, you don't even need to see the movie all the way through (laughs) after that. You just need to. There's one great scene where I think Babe is sick and James Cromwell is singing to it and then starts dancing. And it's just great scene because this really, you know, strong, silent type, uh, serious uh, character just dancing because he, he wants his pig to feel better. And it's a great scene. But then watch that and then skip to the last five minutes. And uh, it, it's just amazing and uplifting and fantastic. The, the, the Babe, Pig, and City was also a good movie, but it was a good movie sequel to a movie that did not need a sequel in any way, shape, or form. Mm. The, the, the first one was such a perfect little self-contained story that there was just no need to, even if it's good, there's no need for a second one. George Miller is such an amazing director with such creative ideas. It'd be more fun for him to take that incredible um, creativity and talent and try something new. Or to do another Mad Max movie. And Mad Max movies are a great example of something that can have sequels because it's an interesting character who you can put in a lot of different settings and you can tell very different stories from one film to the next to the next without it feeling like, oh, he's just doing the same movie over and over again. He, he does not do that. There certainly are themes that run throughout all these movies. But going from Road Warrior to Mad, you know, Mad Max to Road Warrior to Thunderdome to Fury Road, these are all very different movies from each other that are, he's telling very different things with them. Absolutely. All of this talk about Babe makes me really upset that my family had the VHS copy of Gordy and not the Babe movies. Oh, well. Yeah. Gordy was the other talking pig movie that came out around that time, so I was deprived of the George Miller goodness there. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Chicago hopes to uh, Babe's the ER. So the other movies on Christopher Greaves' IMDb list that I said, Breathing Underwater is a drama. Written and directed by Susan Murphy DeMody, starring Anne Louise Lambert, Maeve Dermody, and Christopher Greaves. I could not surmise a lot of what was it about, but I think it's some sort of strange travel movie. And then the last one was another one that I couldn't find another a lot of information about called Greenkeeping. It's a comedy written and directed by David Caesar. It starred Mark Little, Lisa Hensley, and Max Cullen. The tagline on the poster says it's a film about sex, drugs, and lawn bowls. <sighs> but that's really all I could find. And I think that pretty much sums up Dr. Christopher Greaves. Getting back to the minute, we've just had the yelling back and forth of everything that's wrong with the truck and Papagallo is sitting there injured and he looks up at Zeta and says well what does all that mean and I am glad that there is someone else in this situation that has no idea what any of that information means (laughs) I um it's a shame you need a real um motorhead on to, to to do translation it's always fun um I'm a. I've listened on and off to the Adam Carolla show. Adam Carolla is a. He he's a car guy, and he always loves to talk about like the the Nicolas Cage film Gone in 60 Seconds, where they talk about cars. He's like everything they said is wrong and has nothing to do with the car they're looking at. <laughs> it's it's either I, I don't know either they just wikied hey say you know did a wiki search for like tell me car things and just took random sentences. 
or he said more than when they wrote about when they wrote that scene they were talking about they they had a different car in mind and then for whatever reason by the time it came to filming they didn't have the right car and they said no just keep it in no one will know the difference is like if you know cars you completely know the difference Mm-hmm. So whenever there's a scene where they're talking about some sort of engine or some sort of vehicle, it's like, and my dad's a car guy. It's like, oh, I would just love to sit next to dad and see how much BS is being spattled <laughs> off right now. <laughs> I am not that guy. Uh, the, the only, yeah. the closest thing is because uh, I work in the world of uh, software testing. Uh, I remember when I watched the last uh, Bourne film with Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. All these hackers are in a room and they're speaking whatever language of the country they're in. And there's like, okay, have you thought about using SQL for that code? I was like, SQL's just a language? (laughs) So that'd be like if you were writing a manuscript and the person said, have you thought about using English words for the paper you were using? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. Yep. So Papagallo isn't so much asking what does all of that jargon translate into. He's more asking because he wants to know how long it's going to take to fix all that. So Papagallo shouts up to Zeta. Zeta shouts across to the mechanics assistant. And the mechanics assistant pauses for a moment and then looks over at the mechanic. And his statement is cut off by the end of the minute. But he looks at the mechanic and says, what does that mean? And we get the answer on Monday. But I love the pause, the turn, and then the question. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He is all of us in that moment. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? I have no idea. Yeah. And I love that that's the note that we end this week on. What does that mean? (laughs) It's a great moment because you realize he's saying all this stuff with supreme confidence. And then with the slightest pushback on what does that mean? He just stops. And it's not embarrassment or anything. It's just like, you know what? I have no idea what that means. That's that's a good question. If he knew what it means, he wouldn't be the mechanic's assistant. He would just be the mechanic. (laughs) With that being the end of this week, I think it's a good time for us to pivot into our end of the week recap. We started this week with Max coming up over the ridge with the rig. He was pursued by marauders and he was within sight of the compound. But before he was able to get there, he had to fight off Wes, who had smashed through the window. He had someone shooting out his tires until the gyro captain intervened with a snake and made the car crash. It was a very exciting way to start the week. The snake was so funny because obviously it's not a real snake right? You know, for, for, for some of the stuff. And uh, you have to do a lot with a little and just sort of mostly hide the snake. And they just sort of had like a little bit of a side view of the snake with the, the fang sticking out. I was like, eh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where sometimes a close up can linger a little too long. <laughs> but, you know, it works, and, you know, people are just afraid of snakes. And, and you also think it's like, oh, for God's sakes, it's Australia. Everything kills you in Australia, so I can't imagine how bad that snake's going to be. <laughs> the best thing about that situation is that the snake is not the thing that kills anybody. The snake merely causes the dude with the arrow turret to panic. The arrow turret dude kills the driver, and then the crash kills the turret guy. The snake is just an unfortunate passenger in all of this. It just occurred to me that the snake probably died in the crash, too. Either that or it was flung off. Oh, it's a good point. I hope so. He doesn't deserve <laughs> that fate. 
He didn't do anything. That'd be the craziest day. That snake lands past the wreck and he lands in the dirt and gets his bearings and would say, wow, that was weird, and then slithers off. <laughs> It'd be great if you see, like, later see the snake going back to its den. Its wife is like, where the hell have you been? It's like, you're not going to believe the day I had. <laughs> so I was in this bag. <laughs> oh, So the next day, we saw Max make it inside the compound, but he wasn't alone. He had a couple of raider vehicles behind him, which stirred up all sorts of chaos. So you had Papagallo on the flamethrower, keeping raiders at bay, and then you had the other compound dwellers fighting on the ground against all of these raiders that had infiltrated the compound. A really cool battle, and... It goes to show how important sound effects and music are, especially mm -hmm. back then where we're uh, so deeply into the CGI era. And I love a lot of the movies that take place in the era, but it makes everything too perfect, too crisp. There's no... Often you, you lose a little bit of blood and guts to uh, battles and fights. And uh, as a Marvel Universe fan, uh, I, I love those movies, but you, you don't... You, everything's too perfect and you get you sort of lose a sense of uh really tough brawling and these scenes have that so much where every punch looks like it hurts there's no karate there's no martial arts there's no like people who were look like perfect fighting machines you just have people who are barely surviving in this wasteland and trying to out muscle and out brawl their opponents yeah, it's a very visceral fight. Another thing that I like about it that I didn't mention the other day is there's no shaky cam because it wasn't a thing back then. These are shots with a stable camera so you can actually see what's going on and there's a good sense of where things are so that you can actually follow the action. And I think you made a really good point, Brad, that these aren't crazy martial artists. I think the only person that really knows how to handle themselves in the fight is Warrior Woman because she drops down from above that one raider and just cuts his throat but then you've got people like david who have hit this dinky little crossbow and yeah he's able to shoot one of the raiders but then wes comes in flips over him like a power ranger which is appropriate because he was later in a season of power rangers and it's people fighting for their lives right yeah and so it's just it feels more real. My favorite illustration of that is when Max is running across the compound to get to the flamethrower. He kind of barrels into a marauder. Mm -hmm. And it looks like just a complete accident yeah. that worked out really well for Max. He just runs into him. They kind of both fall down on the ground. And lucky for Max, he ended up on top. He yep. ended up in control. Yep, that was our Wednesday episode because Papagallo let his guard down and got shot in the leg. And so there was that vacant turret and Wes and Max kind of had a little foot race to see who could get to the turret first, which Max got there way sooner because he didn't Tarzan his way and climb over everything, taking the long way around. Yeah, it's... Well, and it's an interesting statement on Max where um, he's definitely a good fighter and a good driver and all those things, but he's not. But, but there's also just a little bit of luck and uh, this machina that works in his favor. And Gibson does such a great job of looking scared and desperate and doing a. Uh, and that was the thing with action stars of the 80s. Um, it did a lot where they don't didn't always look like they were in control. And Bruce Willis was probably the best ever at that, where Bruce Willis in every fight he was in looked desperate and overmatched. 
Um, Harrison Ford would do the same thing. In a lot of the Indiana Jones movies, he was so cool, but he also looked like he had no idea what the heck he was doing and was sort of just lucking his way with, with smarts and ingenuity and also, you know, being a good fighter. But we're certainly a far cry from that where, and, and again, I love the movies of the current era, but you know, we're more in a Jason Bourne style of he, uh, action hero where it's the smartest, most well-trained guy who's so above and beyond everyone that he's facing off with that it almost doesn't seem like a fair fight until you get to the end of the movie where he faces off against someone who's just as well trained and above everyone else exactly you would never see jason bourne or jack bauer trip over a bad guy and have to scramble awkwardly to his feet like max has to do here no no gosh no they would knock the guy on if they were on the ground they would then do like that little kip up thing where they you know like bounce up and and hey, which looks great and is really cool, but you do. Uh, there is a little bit of a visceral thing that you have to make up in other aspects. Yeah. So once Max was able to get to the flamethrower, he took over the responsibilities of keeping the Raiders at bay. And yesterday we got to the point where Wes is pretty much the only Raider left alive in that compound. He's perched up on top of the tanker, and above his head flies in. The gyro captain. Gyro captain lands. Wes runs away. The rest of the horde retreats. And we start getting into that calm down period after the fight. And a lot of Thursday's minute was dominated by this conflict between the gyro captain and the feral child where the gyro captain wanted no one to touch his gyrocopter. But the feral child was very adamant about his desire to touch the gyrocopter. <laughs> and that was really the face-off of Thursday. First off, the feral kid... It's such a fun design to that character, but man, that is the most 1980s of 80s hair he had. I was like, wow, is this just the origin story of the lead singer for Whitesnake? <laughs> I was like, wow, that is, uh, that is quite a look that kid has, but it's great, and... Um, when, when I'm watching that minute, I'm just thinking nothing about the scene could be any more Australian. And between the backdrop and the feral kid and the gyro captain being so seedy and sort of skeevy and creepy, but still being dapper and um, weirdly fatherly. is like, no, you don't touch. You don't touch that. Uh, I was like, well, every it, this is just a minute to just feel so Australian. And, and of course, <laughs> I say that all I really know about Australia is from watching the first two uh, Crocodile Dundee movies and reading uh, uh, Bill Bison's uh, In a Sunburnt Country. But I feel that's enough to you know, like make me an expert on this. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> I think the other Brad that we've had on this show might disagree with you, but he's native Australian, so I don't think we'd have an easy time of setting that up, but that would be interesting to have our two Brad guests come on and face off one against another, American Brad versus Australian Brad. Ooh, that'd be interesting. I'll keep that on the back burner. Maybe when we're doing Thunderdome, we'll bring the two of you in and have you uh, duke it out. What two brads enter, one brad leads. Yep. Well, that would just be uh, hilarious, me explaining to him what Australia is like. It's like, <laughs> I, he'd be like, I, I think this guy's America explaining me Australia. We can do a trivia contest where you'll get asked all the Australia questions and he'll get asked all of the America questions. 
and we'll see how that goes. Oh man, <laughs> I, it, that, yeah, so sure many that plans <laughs> for so far down the road. <laughs> so we're pretty much at the end of this week, Brad. It has been so great hanging out with you. If people wanted to hear more from you. How would they go about doing that? Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. We uh, put an episode out weekly. It's a lot of fun. We have some really cool episodes coming out soon. Again, our conversation with uh, Walt Simonson, uh, the artist who did that great uh, work on the Thor comic. Uh, We're going to have that soon. Robin Paris from the movie The Room will be on soon. Uh, We have our annual Halloween episode, which is always great, where uh, some of our recurring panelists are going to be on to uh, talk about the their, their, their the horror movies that we all uh, watched and enjoyed this year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always a great time. We have um, amazing guests and ama- amazing panelists. And uh, it, it's a great time. We recommend you come on, check it out. Um, Minute of Darkness, where we uh, discuss minute by minute, day by day, the great film Army of Darkness is uh, completed. But you can, uh, it's still on iTunes and or wherever your, uh, wherever quality podcast can be found. A really fun show. And uh, Rick and Julia uh, were both on and added so much to it. And we had such great discussion. Uh, so recommend checking that out. Uh, next year, um, and this has, this is been announced our uh, big thing that we're looking to do our next spin-off of uh from geppetto studios we're going to be doing a minute by minute examination of the uh, animated film transformers really yeah it's going to be a great time and it's going to be very different because usually the minute by minute films you're doing star wars you're doing ghostbusters you're doing the mad max films uh, army of darkness and you're basically talking about movies that you love and that are great films and really fun to talk about. And while I have a lot of childhood affection for the Transformers animated film, there are so many things wrong with that movie. And it's going to be really fun to just talk about how uh, Judd Nelson was the, the 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 lead, the voice of the lead character from that movie. And it was probably one of the worst celebrity vocal performances I ever heard in a movie. And uh, it's going to be fun for that where there's a lot of love for the movie and they did some things right that none of the Michael Bay movies have done right. But they also <laughs> did some things terribly, terribly wrong. So it'll be yeah. fun to sort of like pick that apart. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it looks like a, um, Thomas Howarth is going to be my co-host on that and we're going to have a lot of guests and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun so that's going to be coming next year yeah that sounds like a really good time the Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham the Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 50 of the Road Warrior. Have a great weekend.